You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Before we get to our conversation today, we did want to mention that in just a few short weeks, we're going to be launching our next online course. We've done this a little bit in the past, but this time I'll be leading it, and it'll be called Is the Bible True? So we'll be going through four different sessions on Monday nights as the the live version. So you'll be interacting with me live on Monday nights, and we'll have some time for questions about that. Is the Bible true? But I'll also be talking through a lot of different content and concepts and ideas about the truth of the Bible and how sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not true, but maybe it's true in more significant ways. So check that out. You can go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash course and check it out there. You can also see the other courses that we have now for uh, for download that you can do as a self-study if you wanted to check those out. Uh, but we hope you just continue to learn about the Bible and interact with other people and keep the conversation going. So check it out again, uh, thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash course. And the course that's coming up is, Is the Bible True? Today, our topic is reading the Bible through the lens of love. And our guest is Jonathan L. Walton. Yeah, and he's over at Harvard uh, yeah, I don't know if you've heard of that or not. It's a pretty small mm, school. Where is it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's in California or something. Probably. Uh, but Montana. He's the, he's the plumber professor of Christian morals, actually. And and one thing I really appreciated, he's actually the uh, minister in the Memorial Church there at Harvard University. And so he has this very pastoral side as well as um, uh, he's also really smart and has thought a lot about Christianity and morals and ethics and, and how the Bible fits into all that. Right, and and also talking about uh, reading the Bible through the lens of love, which was a really fascinating discussion, and you know how you get there, what that even means. But it boils down to reading the Bible in ways that humanize other human beings. <laughs> it doesn't doesn't demonize them or um, something that promotes love, which sounds like a perfectly biblical idea to me. And I appreciated how he went even further to talk about. Not just any love or any notion of love or love as a feeling, but this love that's rooted in the justice uh, passages in the prophets and in Jesus. Mm-hmm. So we see it in the Bible itself. We're not just making stuff up here. Right. And that's his, the subtitle of the book that he that, that sort of has formed the basis for this podcast is um, reading the Bible in its world for our world. It's it's looking at the, that context and and drawing out of that imaginatively and creatively to promote ethical readings of the Bible today. And that's the task of theology. That's really what we're all about here. So that's 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 what we're going to talk about today, folks. Well, let's jump right in. The Bible, it's a sharp blade. Then it has the capacity to heal and repair, but also history has proven that the Bible can also bruise and bludgeon. And so when I talk about responsible biblical interpretation, I'm talking about trying to use scripture to heal broken hearts, to heal communities, to speak to injustice and evil, rather than using it to beat down people who are already suffering under the hands of injustice. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Well, welcome, Jonathan, to the podcast. It's really great to have you on. It's great to be here. Well, let's jump right in because you have this book, and early on in this book, you talk about the ethics of biblical interpretation, which I think that phrase for for me and Pete really stuck out. And so maybe just take a minute on what that means, but also how, how what's your life story? What's the trajectory that got you to want to write about this particular topic? Well, that's a great question. And, and really, I mean, my life story is one of uh, 
I have a productive relationship with the biblical texts, fortunately, because of my family. Uh, my grandparents and parents from an early age kind of immersed me in an enchanted world, if you will. And so really, the Bible is my first intellectual tradition. And while I went on to train and as a social ethicist and a scholar of religion, when I'm in the kind of struggles of life and when I'm thinking about ethical behaviors in terms of what's the right thing to do, the good thing to do, the just thing to do. Uh, I often don't find myself appealing to Kant or Aristotle, but I find myself appealing to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or mm-hmm. Moses standing uh, before Pharaoh, or Daniel in the lion's den. And so, really, living in this sort of enchanted world that I know I'm not alone. And so, when I thought about the ethics of biblical interpretation, I really thought about what are some of the productive ways where I could, along with the readers, promote and consider responsible biblical interpretations for non-specialists, for other people who are just trying to live right and love right, but are so informed by the powerful narratives of Scripture. When you say doing that responsibly, what do you mean by doing it responsibly? When I talk about doing it responsibly, I mean, the, the Bible, it's a, it's a sharp blade. Uh, we often call it the sword. Um, but the, it's a sharp blade and it has the capacity to heal and repair like a surgeon's scalpel. But also, we also know, history has proven, uh, that the Bible can also bruise and bludgeon like a butcher's knife. And so, when I talk about responsible biblical interpretation, I'm talking about doing the former and rejecting the latter trying to use scripture to heal broken hearts, to heal communities, to speak to injustice and evil, rather than using it to beat down people who are already suffering under the hands of injustice. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something before too, Jonathan, you used the phrase a couple of times, uh, the enchanted world. And that's fascinating to me. And I all sorts of images come to my mind, but can you flesh out a little bit more what you mean by that? Like the Bible is an enchanted world. Yeah, it's 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 the the stories that shape who we are, right? The spiritual stories, the spiritual narratives and histories. And so the with the previous example I gave, I I thought about when I find myself in a rough circumstance, when I find myself like so many people often do, with their feeling like their back is against the wall. Uh, what are we informed by? Well, I begin to think about, you know, uh, Daniel in a lion's den. I begin to think about uh, the great characters of faith. I think about even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, praying to his father uh, to remove this bitter cup from him. These are the stories that kind of are always swirling around my head to use that imagery. And they're informing my choices and informing my decisions. And so that's what I mean when I say I live in an enchanted world. It's sort of like, I mean, I... I, I think of uh, – it's not the same thing, but I think of fairy tales or other kinds of stories that are enchanted, and they sort of create a world for you, you know, that you can imagine yourself in. And so, I wonder – it seems like the word imagination can easily tie into what you're saying here. And I know you use that word too in your book. So, talk about that a little bit, like like the role of imagination in engaging the Bible. Well, well, that's one of the things I talk about. I talk about moral imagination. Yeah, that's talk, a thing too. Yeah, I, I talk about moral imagination. You, that's, yeah. You've put your finger, absolutely, you put your finger right on it. Uh, and this concept of moral imagination for me, and of course, I'm not the first one to appeal to that category from John Dewey to Toni Morrison and so many in between, right? But for mm-hmm. me, it's being able to lift ourselves and lift our minds and our creativity from often the obstacles and impediments and challenges of life that face us. Because when we think about the ubiquity of suffering and evil in our world, it's easy to get your head so bogged down and your spirits low. Well, how do we lift our spirits by lifting our minds where we begin to think creatively about systems of oppression, where we think creatively about how to love and treat one another right? Um, And I think that 
Both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament provide us so many sacred stories and narratives uh, that can help lift lift up bowed down heads. Well, you know, when you talk about being responsible with this, I can I can imagine, you know, the tradition I grew up in where responsible biblical interpretation wasn't responsibility toward this moral imagination, but it was responsibility to interpret the Bible in a uh, more wooden, literalistic, or even sort of historically accurate, we might say, in, in that understanding of it. Have you wrestled with that at all, or is that part of your tradition or conversations you have on what does it mean to be responsible to what the Bible meant and also responsible to how it points us into a new trajectory and sort of that balance of preservation and innovation in this moral imagination? Well, earlier I cited how my grandparents and parents both provided a productive relationship with the scriptures to me. And that is in part, and I talk about uh, even at the beginning of the book, my grandfather, who grew up under what W.E.B. Du Bois describes as the veil of racial discrimination and segregation in American society. I mean, he was born in 1924 in segregated North Carolina. And a lot of what he heard from the authoritative voices in Christian communities in America actually used scripture to justify his dehumanization, justify his marginalization, justify his racial segregation. And fortunately, he grew up in an African Methodist Episcopal church that affirmed the exact opposite, that God sided with those on the underside of power and oppression, that God was not on the side of Egypt and Pharaoh, but God was on the side of Moses and those who were enslaved. And and so it's that sort of responsible, productive understanding of the text, because when I read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I see a God who is on the side of the underdogs. And and so when I talk about uh, responsible biblical interpretation, that's what I'm trying to hold the line to, because often our quote-unquote, the orthodoxy of biblical interpretation of the West does not or has not done a good a job of affirming those who have been victimized by our faith traditions, but more has done a better job of affirming the status quo. Let me put it that way. <laughs> You're being very gentle, Jonathan, when you say that. <laughs> um, we're talking, of course, about racism, really, in, in biblical interpretation of the history of the church, right? We are talking about the logics of racism and white supremacy in the church. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That also extends to the androcentric reading, or that's a fancy way of saying male supremacy and sexism. We are talking about logics of imperialism, where those who have power are able to compel others to come. And so, therefore, it's hard at times to distinguish between evangelicalism or evangelizing the good news of the gospel and simply cultural imperialism in the name of power mm -hmm. and seizing resources. And so, therefore, mm -hmm. what I want to do with this book, like so many others who have come before me, is to offer a reading of God's activity in the world, as read in Scripture, that looks at those who have been on the underside of all kinds of forms of discrimination and see that God that says, I see you. Now, some would say, and because I'm thinking here of questions that I get to when I talk about this sort of thing, and Jared as well, it, it seems that in the biblical story itself, you do have hooks for, let's say, marginalizing certain people. You, you have, at times, I guess, God who is portrayed as being on the side of one particular people, namely Israel, and being against others. And you know, as you know, this is this has been part of the argument for, well, at least in the 19th and 20th centuries about justification of white supremacy, because you, ha you have these things in there. So, I don't know if, if you want to pick a story or something that maybe needs to be subverted a little bit, you know, stories that are maybe more on the dark side. 
that need to be thought of more creatively and with a greater immoral imagination? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And that's one of the things that I attempt to do here is wrestle with some of those very difficult passages mm. that will have us walking away thinking that God is a racist and God is, yeah. a, God is sexist, right? Or that God is ethnocentric, that God yeah. sides with one group of people over another group of people. What's one of those stories you think of first? Well, and I tell you, I even had to wrestle with a, a story that's very plays very prominently in my own tradition of African-American Protestantism, right? The Exodus motif. There, there are probably few things that loom larger in the Afro-Protestant tradition than the release of uh, enslaved Hebrews from Egypt. And there's that story of uh, God creating a highway through the Red Sea and drowning Pharaoh and his army. And I have to say, for the most of my life, I've never given much thought to the Egyptians because I was so busy celebrating. Hmm. Uh, and I would even say beating my own chest about how God delivered these enslaved Hebrews. But one evening during the Passover season, we were with some Jewish friends of ours at the Passover Seder, and they were praying a ritual. And they dropped some wine in memory, and we recited some words from the prayer book. And it said that we also remember the Egyptians who were drowned because they're God's children too. Hmm. And it's at that moment that I began thinking about how the lines of good and evil and those who are on the right side of the wrong and the wrong side, quote unquote, of life. Often in biblical stories, delineating between good and evil, all right, and those who are righteous and those who are are, are unrighteous. That's easy, and it makes for good storylines, but we know that life is more complicated than that. And that story is a constant reminder that there were some people who may have been drowned in that Red Sea, right, who may have stood up and bore witnesses to the injustices of their own nation. And we have to remember their humanity as well. I remember just anecdotally when my daughter she was 10. She came home from church once when they discussed this story, and she was very, very upset. And I asked her what was going on. She said, you know, those Egyptians, they all drowned. And she said, I quote, aren't they God's children too? And I didn't really know what to say, but inside I was saying, good for you, girl. <laughs> you know, Good for you for even asking that question. And what I find so fascinating about the Bible is that for every story like that, where you have to sort of do some explaining, there are other stories too that I guess God is portrayed differently and not as maybe seeking vengeance on the enemy, but, you know, like the book of Jonah, where God actually cares about the Assyrians, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's, it's partly this the diversity of the text too that sort of helps us along those lines that gives us permission to do what you're saying, which is creatively engaging these texts and thinking of ethical implications. I, I serve at the Memorial Church of Harvard University, and the Memorial Church is actually a war memorial yes. dedicated on Armistice Day in 1932. And there are 1,113 names of the war dead engraved on our walls here at Harvard from World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Hmm. But consistent with the story that we were just talking about, there's also the name of a gentleman who studied at Harvard Divinity School by the name of Adolf Sonwald, and he was here from 1924 to 1925. But below his name, it reads, Enemy Casualty, because he died on the side of the Germans in World War II. And so he has this name, he has this Adolf Sandwald, enemy casualty written up under his name. But more research on Adolf Sandwald has discovered that he was anything but uh, a member of the Third Reich. As a matter of fact, they would not allow him to be a chaplain in the German army because of his sermons that were critical of the Nazi regime. 
and were critical of Hitler. Hmm. As a matter of fact, we have come to discover that he was a member of the Confession Church. Uh, associated with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer right. and, and and the underground Christian resistance. And so he was drafted, he was put on the front lines, and within a month, he was killed. Hmm. And so here it is, history has his name etched in stone as an enemy casualty through our eyes. But we know now that God saw him as a beloved special child. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin-D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. How do you, how do you help people walk through, you know, the, you, the phrase you had was life is more complicated than that, than these sort of black and white storylines where the... Egyptians are bad, the Israelites are good, and, you know, where King David is good and not bad, and Saul is bad, and we, you know, it does make for good storytelling, and to Pete's point, it is in the Bible. How do you help people walk through maybe how they grew up thinking about stories as being more black and white and seeing the world in good and bad terms? Because the Bible, again, seems to endorse that in some places. How do you help people understand that life is more complicated than that in a way that doesn't mean that they reject the Bible, but as you say, I really like that phrase, helps you to be more productive with it. Well, well that's a great question, but for what, I don't think that we have to actually have to convince people that life is more complicated than that. I think people realize that. <laughs> uh, that's good. <laughs> right. I don't know, Jonathan, we know some people who need to be convinced of that because everything's black and white, whatever. So. Uh, I always heard growing up, if you live well, if you live long enough and if you live well enough, right, there are just going to yeah. be some realities that are going to show up at your door that, that you cannot explain. But I do think that it is important to help people to see that the Bible as God's word can also be more complicated than that. And it's a matter of, as both of you do in your work, telling and helping people to see that the biblical texts that have been passed down to us are stories, oral narratives, that circulated through millennia 
and that were recorded at different periods, at different epochs, at different stages of empire, where sometimes groups were on the underside of power and sometimes groups were in power. And these stories adjust accordingly. But scripture is the human experience or articulation of what it means to experience the divine, to experience God. And in our storytelling, we know that we are all prone to tell stories in a way that they are easily remembered. And biblical writers are no different. Biblical storytellers are no different than us today. And so, when we understand that people were working with the language and the tools that they had to capture their sacred encounters, uh, we have to parse through that and help one another make sense of that. And therefore, that instead of creating distance between us and biblical writers and us in the biblical world, it actually begins to connect us in very human ways. Same, because that was actually the next question I was going to ask. How does that help us connect ourselves, our own experience with the experiences of the biblical writers? F- just flesh that out a little bit more because that's I think that's a very, very important point that you're making. Let's take a feeling like fear. Let's take an emotion like fear or anxiety, fear of the other. When we're trying to encounter other peoples from other places and other cultures, it's it's often easy to demonize. It's often easy to render them strange in relationship to how we understand ourselves. And it's easier to do that with another group than actually interrogate our own fear, our own insecurities, and our own cultural shortcomings. Or even be aware that we have those things. (laughs) Even be aware of them in the first place. And so when we're talking about a people a people who have been, who lived under the iron feet of oppression, people, the nation of Israel, for example, living under empire after empire, right? There are understandable reasons that they would be suspicious of others. There mm-hmm. are understandable reasons that they would want their God to stand with them and smote all of the others, particularly those who have treated them unjustly. But it's at that, it's at those very moments where just as we have to take a step back and interrogate who we are and who they are, and then possibly pause long enough to say or ask, could it be that we're all siblings up under the parenthood of a universal loving God? That's a tougher question for us to ask than it is for us to just simply say, God, do away with my enemies. <laughs> well, what you're talking about is called theology, <laughs> right? And that's that's true, though. That's that's this thinking of bridging these two worlds. That is exactly yeah. it, right? And it demands what philosophers call epistemic humility. In other words, us just taking time out to call into question what we know and how we know it, particularly about other people and others' experiences. Hey everyone, my name is Lauren and I live in Melbourne, Australia. I'm part of the producers group here at The Bible for Normal People. One thing I have appreciated about this podcast is the opportunity to hear considered, informed perspectives from a range of biblical scholars and others who are passionately wrestling with scripture. If you've gotten something from this free podcast, I want to take a moment to mention how you can support Pete and Jared in their work. This podcast is brought to you by supporters on the Patreon platform. For as little as $1 a month, you can be part of the group that brings this podcast to normal people everywhere. As a gift for your support, we have book studies, chat groups, and lots of videos from Pete and Jared. So check it out at patreon.com forward slash the Bible for normal people. If you aren't able to support the show financially, go to iTunes and rate and review the podcast. This can go a long way to helping others find us. One group in particular we want to thank is our producers group, who work hard to tell Pete and Jared where they're messing up and how they can do better. Thanks to Dustin Bocom, Kevin Hoffer, Ted Cole and Kevin Marshall. The Bible for Normal People couldn't happen without you. Now, back to the podcast. Yeah, You mentioned there, you talked about 
being able to love well, and you've mentioned that word a, a number of times, and it sounds like one of the, the pushbacks I, I often get in these conversations is it sounds like you're letting your understanding of what it means to be a good and decent human being, you let that be the filter through which you read the Bible. And I know for some uh, people in my tradition growing up, that would have been a little scary. It's like, no, our Bible needs to determine what our ethic is. Our Bible tells us what love is. We don't bring our understanding of love and then have this moral imagination that we read in conversation with the Bible. So how do you how do you manage that? What does it mean to be loving? Where do we get where do we source that material? Well, that's a very good question, and I would say that I am holding true to my evangelical roots. Because I believe that the Bible is my source material for this understanding of love that I have, this understanding of agape love, good, doing what is right and good for the other, right? Doing unto others as you would have them, as you would do unto yourself. Or when Jesus was asked the question, who is my neighbor? Well, my neighbor is the one who is able to, when I have been besieged by thieves along life's Jericho Road, right? It may be someone from my neighborhood who comes by and keeps on walking. It may be someone of my, of the same racial identity. It may be someone of the same sexual orientation who walks by. But if they all keep walking along, concerned about what will happen to me if I stop to help him, then they are not my neighbor. My neighbor is that person, regardless of the differences between us. My neighbor is that person who stops and says, first, what will happen to him if I do not help him? And that is what this lens of love I'm talking about. This is that ethic of love. Leading with that, leading with the question, what do I owe this person as a child of God? And that's there squarely in the Bible itself. We're not, we don't need to, we're, you know, we're not grabbing the, the ethics of the philosophers or the pop culture and trying to read that back in, but we see it there in these powerful sayings and parables of Jesus. That's, what, that's exactly what I mean to go back earlier when I say I live in this enchanted world, right? That I'm informed by these stories. I'm not pulling from, I'm not pulling from Aristotle here. I'm not pulling from Hegel. I'm pulling from a Palestinian Jewish brother that the Gospels have presented to me as one who doesn't look upon a woman, right, who has been deemed impure, immoral, and unclean by everybody else. He looks at her and he sees someone that is in need of God's loving grace and compassion and care. And so, therefore, what does he do? He extends it to her without asking any questions. Well, let me ask Jonathan, do you, like, the lens of love, okay, is that another way of saying the lens of Jesus, or is it more complicated than that? In other words, is the lens of love, you're looking at Scripture through the lens of love, is that lens of love largely a product of your study of Jesus and who Jesus is and your understanding and experience of Jesus? Mm-hmm. For me as a Christian, I would say yes, um, it is, but I would not make that blanket of a statement. Okay. Um, and the reason being is because we don't necessarily need the teachings of Jesus to come to this sort of hermeneutic or interpretation of the sacred text, because we could also immerse ourselves in the Hebrew prophets. Mm -hmm. And, And I can look at the life of Amos. I can look at Hosea. I can look at Ezekiel. And I can see their care and concern for the oppressed, their care and concern of the most vulnerable in society, as well as their ability to point upward and say, it's not about just being kind to the stranger. We have to call out systems, governmental systems that render some people strange in the first place. It's not about just being good to the poor. We have to call into question governmental systems and regulations that exacerbate cultures of poverty. And so that's also in the Hebrew Bible. And I believe that that is consistent with this understanding of agape love. So that conversation's already starting within the Hebrew Bible itself. Within the Hebrew Bible itself. And so therefore, I read the Jesus movement and Jesus' teaching 
as an incredible, beautiful renewal movement of this grand tradition mm-hmm. found in the Hebrew Scriptures. Right. So Jesus, a great prophet. A great prophet. Right. right, right, yeah. So what would be some, you know, reading strategies, and maybe, maybe I'm not even asking the right question, so you may even have a better question. I just think of when we're reading the Bible, a lot of times— it's been easier to sort of think of ourselves as Christians, just kind of blanket Christians, as being persecuted or oppressed, and because it's easy to identify with the Israelites who were oppressed. And but what's a what's a reading strategy, or how would you recommend people who like me? I'm I'm a I'm a man, and so I'm going to read the text through that lens. And yet, there's this bias for the underdog. So how can I, uh, as someone who's more dominant in a society, in that lens? Uh, and I know there's a lot of intersectionality here, but how do we navigate um, reading that? Because I think it can be toxic for me as a man to sort of put myself in the in the oppressed position sometimes and read it through that lens. But then I don't know what the right strategy might be. So h- how do you how do you think about that or navigate that? Mm-hmm. One of the things I think about is when we set ourselves down into a text, and and we have an understanding of social hierarchies and the ways that they work in the ancient world as well as in our world. And so in our world, we know that there are certain things, there's certain categories, there's certain identities that we can appeal to and they have power, right? Middle class, working class, white collar, blue collar, white, black, Mexican, right? Immigrant, alien, illegal alien, documented. These are all categories and they're all latent and loaded with meaning, cultural meaning. Well, the same was true in the biblical world, in the ancient world, right? Whether we're talking about woman, Jew, Judean, Greek, Samaritan, slave, free, wealthy, poor, widow. These are all categories that are full of meaning that creates pecking orders, And the better we understand those pecking orders, social hierarchies, the better we're able to sit down in a text and begin to look around and see who might be resting at the bottom of one of those pecking orders. And then begin to identify or at least move our line of vision toward that character. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction (laughs) level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. One example for me, and it speaks to your question about, say, for being a man. And the way that we're privileged to read from read scriptural text from a masculinist perspective. I think about the book of Job. Because if there has ever been a kind of a masculinist strong arm text, right? I mean, the book starts with, you know, God and the devil in a wager, right? Over Job. And Job is essentially going to be the Herculean character that can overcome all of the great struggles and trials of life. And, and that is how that story is typically told. And really, other than the comforters, in my tradition, there was always one person that never came out of that story looking good. And if you recall, it was Job's wife. Yep. <laughs> right? I, was hope- I was hoping you were going to say that. Go ahead. Keep going. It was Job's wife. 
right? Because she said to her husband, why don't you just curse God and die? And she has become the theological foil for countless sermons, time immemorial. (laughs) But when we sit in the text and we start asking ourselves, who's really vulnerable here? Yes, Job is going through incredible suffering. Job lost 10 children. Uh, But if he lost 10 children, that was 90 months of life that she carried in her womb. Job lost all of his property and all of his land. Well, what happens to a woman whose husband dies and she is left with nothing? In the best, some of the best case scenarios, she might be given to a family member, as you know, but quite often she could end up in a life of having to sell the only thing of quote unquote value she has, which is her own body. Mm -hmm. And then she's sitting in front of her husband watching him die in front of her very eyes. And for any of us who have ever been in love and been in a long committed relationship, we know that there's always one selfish prayer that we pray. And that is that I will die before my spouse dies so that I will never have to stand over his or her casket. And so here it is, this woman who's gone through all of this, and then she is watching her husband die before her eyes. And in one moment, she says, and we don't know the tone of her voice. We don't know if she said, why don't you just curse God and die? Or if she possibly said, baby, (laughs) baby, please just curse God, close your eyes and die. So that he will be, no longer have to suffer. She may not be this Jezebel kind of figure. She may be compassionate and. Uh, 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 yeah. If we if we just try to have some kind of moral imagination, maybe we might find her story, her life might resonate with us in ways that Job's life cannot. And so that would be an example of looking at some of these texts through a lens of love and suspending our own power and privilege long enough to empathize with somebody on the opposite side of that veil of demarcation. Mm-hmm. That's that's an excellent example of, yeah, you, you answered that question really well. And I'm wondering, as a follow-up to that, are there any practical steps that you would give to people, people who want to re-engage in the Bible in a new way, in a fresh way of, of seeing the text and being able to have this imagination toward it. Are there practical things that you would give uh, advice for people to be able to do, kind of practices or skills or activities or anything like that that could give them something to, to hang their hat on as they move forward? The Bible is one of the greatest, it's a collection of some of the greatest literature that the world has ever known. And I encourage people, I encourage people here at the Memorial Church to pay attention to the characters. Sometimes we're so quick to get to the plot. We're so quick to get to what is the correct reading of this scripture. What is the takeaway? Pay attention to the characters. What is it that's driving them? What are some reasons maybe that they're acting in the ways that they are acting? Even the characters that we don't agree with. What are some of their fears? What are some of their concerns? And in doing that, I believe that we begin to cultivate the empathy that we need to live in this world with one another. And so if we can begin to practice these sorts of reading strategies where we develop empathy with even people we don't agree with in the text, even a Jezebel, <laughs> right. right? even a Jezebel, we begin to understand that Jezebel's working under a masculine and sexist framework, making appeals to power in the only ways in the limited options that have been given to her. We might not agree with her, but maybe we can understand her. And if we start to develop empathy for these characters in the ancient world, in in the stories that we tell each other, then maybe we might be able to uh, transfer some of that empathy to the people who we live with, work with, walk beside each and every day. Yeah, identifying with characters that are not like you, 
that are maybe marginalized. I know Will Gaffney has been on the podcast. She talks about Hagar. Oh, she's an and how, amazing like, scholar. Read, read, read the story through her eyes, you know, basically an Egyptian sex life. And, and read that that way and you come away with a different, well, shall I say moral imagination, <laughs> you know, a, a different view of the other and an ethic of interpretation, I guess, at that point where if it produces in you more love and empathy, I guess is what you're saying, it's a good reading. That's exactly it. Right. Read the okay. biblical story through Hagar. Read it through Ishmael and not yeah. just Isaac. Right. Read it through the young man that was cast out into the wilderness. And even before he's born, people are prophesying that his hand will be against everybody and everybody's hand will be against his. He didn't grow up with the privileges of having a loving, doting father in the house. Or re read the story not through identifying with the penitent tax collector, but through the eyes of... Maybe that Pharisee who is doesn't come across in the best light. We usually put ourselves in the in in the point of people we like, exactly of people we like. But even even like you know when a Pharisee is defending his own righteousness based on what he does, that isn't in and of itself a bad thing because that's a pretty biblical idea to act the right way, right? So, but but we we tend to we tend to have these clear-cut binary sorts of readings of text there's a good person a bad person i want to I, i'm assuming my identification with the person that i like and the others you know we don't really give them much credit but that might actually be a key to better readings of the bible to to, to look at things from different perspectives it is you're so and when we understand that bigger picture like with the pharisee if we're just looking at the pharisee and only in relationship to a repentant tax collector we aren't seeing the insecurities and anxiety of a Pharisee who's also living up under Roman occupation and Roman Empire. Right. <laughs> and is trying to be a Jew in, in that society where they might want to be careful about maintaining those distinctions between themselves, a pagan empire, <laughs> you know, and, and maintaining those distinctions. It's complicated. It, it's so, it, that, that, that's it. That's the it. The Bible is complicated. That's it. So, th th <laughs> so their world, why would we think that their world is any less complicated than the crazy yes. world that we live in? Yeah. And so, again, back to our earlier point, this allows us to connect with them at the most human level, right? Mm -hmm. And I always believe that that's the best level for love. Yeah. All right. Well, Jonathan, listen, we are coming to the end of our time here, and First of all, we enjoyed having you on so much. This has been great. But let tell our listeners uh, a couple of things, maybe where they can find you online, because they like they like stalking people. So maybe you'll get some stalkers. Now we have good people who just want to sort of find out more about our guests. And I, we know that you have a book. And if you're maybe working on any other projects or what's next for you? Yeah, well, I am. I have the privilege of serving as the plumber professor of Christian morals at Harvard University, and I'm the Pusey minister at the Memorial Church of Harvard University. You can find us online at memorialchurch.harvard.edu. You can also find me online uh, on my website, on Instagram, on Twitter, on Facebook, Jonathan L. Walton, Jonathan L. Walton com or Jonathan L. Walton on any of other one of those uh, social networking platforms. Please connect with me. I'd love to hear from you. Love to hear yeah. what you think about the book, A Lens of Love, Reading the Bible in Its World for Our World. And you're a busy man, So, but, but any other projects at this point that you're thinking about, even if you haven't started them yet, what, what might be next for you? Well, I'm actually going back to work, finish a book that I started before A Lens of Love. Oh. Um, and it's actually a book on the prosperity gospel in America. Uh, ah. That is my original research field. My first book was entitled Watch This, The Ethics and Aesthetics of Black Televangelism. Um, and so I have a history of writing about the prosperity gospel as well as religion, media, and culture. And I'm taking up this larger project about the prosperity gospel in America and its roots, not just in charismatic healing revivals of post-war 20th century America, but actually going back to the early 19th century in America. 
we see the roots of what we now know as the prosperity gospel. And so that's another project that I'm currently working on. So keep me in your prayers and positive thoughts with that one. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan, for coming on. We really appreciated it. And uh, yeah, best of luck with all that. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. See ya. Hey, friends, thanks again for joining us here on the podcast. And uh, Jared, you have uh, something new in your life, don't you? I do. It's It's been a, a project that's been fun, a labor of love, we might call it. But uh, now and again, we do some courses um, with the, the Bible for Normal People community. And we have another one upcoming here. It's going to be launching at the beginning of April. And it's called Is the Bible True? And it's going to be led by me. Hmm. And we're going to be looking at that question, is the Bible true? And there's so much more to it than just yes or no. So just so you know, if you sign up, you'll get more than just yes or no. There's there's a lot more I going think, on. I think it, it is a simple yes or no. Jared, you think right? so? Yeah, just yeah. yes. Yeah, you strike me as someone who thinks the Bible is really simple. Yeah, it's very simple. Easy to understand. So yeah. if you are interested in that, learning more about and, and maybe we will answer that question, but it is more nuanced. It's more complicated, as you might suspect, mm-hmm. than what we originally would think. So, but if you're interested in that, you can go to the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash courses, and you can look at that. Uh, you can also see the other courses we've done, but that one will be going live. So it's a live course. You can be with other people. We have a time of Q&A at the end of each session. It's four weeks long. And uh, yeah, so check it out. Just go to the Bible I mean, for Normal four People. weeks continually. Four, four, four Mondays. No, four weeks. So just it's a lot of material. Oh yeah, it's a, yeah, right. Yeah, you're there for thirty days, so just yeah, whatever. We meet one, once a week. Oh, on really? Monday. Okay, I thought it's not I every think single I think we're going to do every day for for no. four weeks. No. All right, fine. Whatever you want to do, every, Jared. Now, you, now you're making it. Well, for me, I just think I, I want to respect people's time. Yeah. You know? They're busy. <laughs> and you want to so every day for 30 days, that's oppressive. That'd be a lot. That'd yeah. be too much. Okay, you're but right. But just one I night a point. week. I see your point. Weeks. I see your point. Okay. Yep. So just go to the Bible for normal people.com front slash courses, and I uh, hope to see you there. See ya.